0: think we'd be better at talking at the same time now awful we do it when we don't mean to
1: (laughs) hello and welcome to this very special episode of all the way through the podcast revisiting the louis Theroux back catalogue to work out if we love him as much as we thought we did my name as always is matthew dunn miles and i'm joined always and forever by alex watson hello alex
0: hello and why is it such a special episode?
1: Well, it's special for many reasons. One of them is that we finally came to the end of Weird Weekends, which feels like a very transformative series in Louis's life but feels like it was very transformative for us. When we started this, it was February 2020.
0: The world was a different place.
1: And then suddenly everything was shut down and these documentaries got me through the last 18 months, maybe more than any other telly.
0: Definitely. I think that especially in the early stages of the pandemic, having something to think about that was nothing to do with real life or even with current times was very nice.
1: But Alex, there was only one way to kind of see off weird weekends as we graduate weird weekend school and go on to when Louis met secondary school, where we'll probably have our dinner money taken and get atomic wedgies and be hung up on door frames.
0: For your listening pleasure today, dear listeners, we actually interviewed Louis Theroux.
1: We did. Obviously, the podcasting is a audio format, but you can kind of tell from throughout we were grinning. We kind of prepped on the basis that maybe... Louis, having done so much in that time since, would not remember the details of individual episodes of Weird Weekends, maybe as much as we do who have recently watched them. He was so on the ball with all the details and knew it almost like he was there, I suppose. We probably should let the man himself speak for himself. So, on the count of three one, two, three, let's, let's play, play Weird with Bingo! Bingo. Louis, welcome to All The Way through the podcast journeying through your back catalogue to work out if we love you as much as we thought we did. We ask all our guests to do this so we we can't change the rules for you. Can you tell our audience who you are and what you do?
2: Uh, Yes, my name is Louis Theroux and I make programmes, I suppose, about offbeat cultural subjects or subjects that involve some sort of emotional angst, subjects that I'm interested in, and uh, I present and write them. And yeah, that's about it, I suppose.
0: You did say we don't need to talk about it, but you are here partly to tell us a bit about your new book, which is Through the Keyhole, Dispatches from a Grounded Documentary Maker. So what can you tell us about that?
2: Okay, the first thing I can tell you is that they've changed the subtitle (laughs) from Dispatches from a Grounded Documentary Maker to Diaries of a Grounded Documentary Maker. Apparently, The word dispatches, they were worried that there were copyright issues because of the Channel 4 strand dispatches, which I thought was bizarre. You know, the things that when you get into TV and publishing that pop up as issues, sometimes they're really strange. And they said, like, if you call it dispatches, people might think it's something to do with dispatches and then dispatches on Channel 4 will get upset. Anyway, so now it's diaries. It was sort of an attempt to, I suppose, record all the strangeness of life during the pandemic. And I started it. I think it was March 18th of um, 2020 and, you know, right at the beginning of even before the first lockdown started at the point where they were discouraging us from going into work for the first time. And it became clear that, oh, wow, all this stuff on the news about things happening in China and Italy and Iran. This isn't just one of those news items that comes and goes. This is actually going to be a a life-changing event for millions of people. I can't even remember whether I thought, oh, I could write a book and then publish it, but I mainly thought, oh, I should make some kind of record of what's going on on the home front during um, during this very weird period of time. I studied history at university, and so I used to read occasionally things like Diaries from them, even from the Middle Ages, right, or from early modern times, like Samuel Pepys's diary. So I like that idea that someone relatively insignificant uh, is swept up in, and, and, and does their little sort of worm's eye view of a kind of issue of international importance, you know, whether it happens to be the Great Fire of London or the Hundred Years' War or the Peasants' Revolt, right? And, and here, so here we, here's me... Attempted to do justice to my version of what was uh, the pandemic was like, and I did it more or less every day with a few little breaks uh, for a year, and and um, and now and then I kind of honed it, and in the process of bringing it into publication, I've attempted to give it a bit more of a polish and a shape. It's sort of Louis with his figurative clothes off, you know, and 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 you could. You could sort of say, well, actually, what does this have to do with what you normally do, which is sort of go out of your home, go on location and report on other people and what they're going through. And I think in an odd way, I've attempted to subject Louis Theroux to the same level of journalistic, sort of unsparing, but hopefully compassionate journalistic inquiry as I have done other people. You know, and attempted to bring the same sort of forensic, um, Gimlet-eyed, journalistic approach.
1: It's um, the reception, which, then.
2: Yeah, yeah, in a weird way. It's quite odd being both um, sort of anthropologist and tribe, you know, <laughs> professor and experiment. But I'm, 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 I'm tempted to be both. I guess people can decide what they think about the results when they read The Rue, The Keyhole.
0: Were you annoyed that we stole a good pun of your name so that you now can't use that for anything in the future?
2: Well, I mean, it's like dispatches, isn't it? Would you <laughs> sue me if I used it? That'd be quite <laughs> awkward. If, but, I mean, you'd be well within your rights, presumably. You'd have to prove some sort of um, proprietary interest and in the fact that I was confusing consumers by trading on a well-established brand. It's you know, I think the, our
1: attorneys are off camera so they've got all that recorded which is great news
2: your, your attorneys are very aggressive I'm sure the <laughs> The Theroux the pun started as something I mentioned this in my first book in the playground at, when I was at school I remember being about literally six years old and, and the kid asked me what's your name I said Louis Theroux and they said ah Louis Theroux the ball and, and I thought god that was I, I remember thinking like that was a super lame joke you know like Wow, that wasn't even slightly funny. And yet, um, here I am, trading on it, basically, making it part of my brand. I, you know, I, think what I, li- I like to th- think that what I enjoy about the Therupan is that it is so bad.
1: Yeah, I think that's where we, we were coming from it as well. I
2: think so. I, think so. I mean, I, I'm so lost in irony sometimes that I can't always tell whether I think something's funny because it's unfunny or... Just funny because it's funny, or just
1: unfunny because it's unfunny.
0: It's so bad it's good, I think, at this point.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Obviously, we've been re watching Weird Weekends, and in an episode, you're doing a mood board exercise with a guy, and you cut out a picture of Jet Kerouac from a magazine as a reminder that you want to write more. Is that still a dream of yours, or is that something you feel you've fulfilled now?
2: first of all, that's so lovely that you've reminded me of that. And it's so weird that I think at this point, you probably have a better recollection of what's in episodes of Weird Weekends than I do. I I, I remember doing the mood board. I think I was with Michael Yee in Las Vegas. How do you want to be? Awesome. Every day. Awesome. He's (laughs) the same guy who, when I said, well, you can't always be awesome. Like, what if you've just been run over by a car and your legs being amputated? he say, I'm awesome. I'm alive. I'm still alive.
0: <laughs> That's no challenge for Michael. No challenge
2: yeah, at all. Exactly. He never had problems. He only had challenges. And um, yeah, life was always awesome. If you've got cancer, I've, I'm awesome. I can't remember why he was awesome if he had cancer. Presumably because he was not dead
1: yet, right? I think it was. He was still, he was still breathing, so he was <laughs> awesome, essentially. And
2: breathing. Um, and the mood board it was a, it's a technique that's used in self-help circles where you usually from pages of a magazine you cut things that appeal to you that sort of evoke the be that you you know the sort of the person that you wish to be the dream scenario of what your life might look like and it's quite it's a little bit embarrassing and naff because you end up of course cutting out what's in magazines which is mainly adverts or glossy photos of celebrities right And so I remember thinking like I cut out a guy had a six pack and I was like, oh yeah, he looks really muscly. I'd like to be like that. The Jack Kerouac is a more laudable ambition. Um, I would say having just got this book ready for publication, I'm quite, I'd be quite happy to write a bit less now. It, It nearly did me in trying to finish all my TV projects, plus doing my podcast grounded. And then alongside that attempting to, um, to write this book, finish this book. Also because the TV team and the, and the sort of book team, you know, the books being published by Pan Macmillan, there's no overlap, like th- those gears don't really mesh, you know what I mean? Like, it's not as though I mentioned Jamie Oliver, like, I, he seems like a kind of the consummate empire building, um, sort of celebrity brand. And I imagine all those bits, it's like a Swiss clock, isn't it? And his time, is he's got people managing his time, so everyone gets as much of him as they need. And probably everything gets delegated in a very efficient way. But with me, I felt felt as though sometimes I was being pulled in five different directions. And um, so the answer to the question is, I'm glad I've written it. It's the the second book I've written in the last four or five years. And having done it, I'm looking forward to not thinking about writing much for a while.
0: So you mentioned Grounded, your podcast, award-winning podcast. Is that right?
2: Thank you. Yeah, it is.
0: Congratulations. We basically launched our podcast almost at exactly the same time. So Um,
2: we're rivals. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Contemporaries,
1: rivals, whichever way you want to see it.
2: Yeah, but the world of podcasting, it's not the most cutthroat (laughs) that's it
1: it's quite friendly we've found
2: it's relatively friendly like compared with I mean a cutthroat world it's not like um high performance racing car drivers right you know what I mean or um I don't even know yeah bandits off the horn of Africa they're quite rivalrous I think in the podcasting world it's relatively collegial because we're always trying to get each other to appear on our podcasts aren't we so like with Adam Buxton who's one of my contemporaries from from school and, and, a, and an old friend, and it's sort of like um, there's this sort of wary like, oh yeah, have you? okay, you have got Robbie Williams on, nice, good booking, good booking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you basically... want to interview
1: Robbie Williams? Is that? Her? Uh,
2: I wouldn't, you know, I I I when he told me you having he had Robbie Williams on, I genuinely thought, oh yeah, that I I I would be interested in the world of pop celebrity. Like there's a whole bunch of things I'd be curious about involving Robbie Williams. Yeah, he, I think that would be a good interview, actually. And it was, in fact, if you heard uh, where Adam took it, what he did was he sort of owned up to his own ambivalence about the Robbie phenomenon, right? Which was quite a bold strateg- sort of take on, on, on the, on, you know, bold approach to the subject. And um, it wasn't like, so Robbie, I think you're a dick. It wasn't that direct, but it was more like, oh, I remember in the 90s when, you were everywhere and, and perhaps I resisted the Robbie phenomenon and may even have made a few jokes. This is Adam, not me, about him. And, and then Robbie answered that and, and, t- and, and it, you know, got the interview to a real place quite quickly.
0: I think all of Adam's podcasts are great. If he wants to come on here and talk to us about you, that would be quite fun.
2: What's the criterion for appearing on All the Way Through?
0: Well, the idea is, this is an expert for every topic. So we've had everything from um, sex therapists for swingers to Lambert Opik talked to us about UFOs. Really?
1: He's, he's the head of a space council now. Oh um, so when we talked about UFOs, Lambert came to talk to us about the idea of going into space to meet aliens, which was lovely and an insightful chat.
2: Nice. Have you? But have you also had people on who've been? We've um, worked on that. My, my impression is you've had a couple of colleagues of mine on the program over the years.
0: Yeah, we've had a few people on. We were wondering if you had a few WhatsApp messages from people saying, "Is it okay if I talk to these strangers?" Yeah, I absolutely
2: <laughs> have, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, go do it." And then I'd be thinking, like, "But why aren't they asking me to go on it? Surely that <laughs> would be." <laughs> we thought you might be a bit busy. <laughs> yeah, because
1: well. you were a rival podcaster, so we didn't think it was appropriate at the time. Um, that's it
2: that's it but you don't it's one hand washes the other that's how you got to smooth the way yeah it is interesting
0: thank you for coming it is interesting though that um as we kind of turned retrospective on your work you also turned retrospective and I realise it was partly because of lockdown but you kind of started to look back at your own work and we were like Louis why are you doing this now we're trying to launch this podcast where we do this um but we've forgiven you for that now what was it that made you kind of turn inward more? Because obviously you've done that in the book as well. And um, was it just because you were stuck at home, or was there? A, have you reached an age where you want to look back?
2: Okay, I think it's all of the above. Like w- w- the first thing that I think happened was one of us noticed that um, I was coming up on a twenty-five year anniversary in television. And when I say one of us, I mean someone on the production team. And in in TV land. And in media in general, anniversaries are always sort of seen as really helpful ways of just giving giving yourself a focal point for your thinking, you know, and 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 actually uh, getting a commission that doesn't involve shooting a lot of new material. And I had done it once or twice before, done sort of little retrospective programs where it's like, let's do a best of, or let's let's. Uh, make a program where we uh, celebrate, you know, what all, all the programs we've done in some way, drawing the threads together. Uh, what happened in lockdown was it was almost like there was a TV famine. There wasn't enough TV to fill the airwaves, and they began reshowing old programs. You, I'm sure you remember this. It was kind of, I write about this in my book, or like around Christmas and New Year's Eve. They were doing reruns of old episodes of before they were famous uh, and, and sort of I love the 80s kind of thing. It was, it was utterly because they just had because of COVID restrictions, there hadn't been the opportunity to make um, new to travel for work and to interview people and make new programs. So uh, what had been the idea of making a single one hour look back at some of my old programs Because of the pandemic, it was supersized into four hours and we called it Life on the Edge and became more ambitious. And it was, so that was really the impulse. And I think, but I think the aging process is part of it too. Turning 50, sort of realizing that um, in different ways, stories that I covered in the 90s have had either an afterlife or that in weird ways they've predicted aspects of the world that we're now in. The the best example I like to give of this is that guys I met in the first ever episode of Weird Weekends that I filmed, which was filmed under the title Head for the Hills. It went out episode 3 in the first run of Weird Weekends in 98, but we filmed it at the end of 96, so 25 years ago. Uh, And these were guys who thought that either the end of the world was happening or the UN was going to take over the world and the New World Order, and that this sort of tyrannical federal government was going to take all the freedom-loving Americans' guns away and more or less make slaves of them. And, the, and the, main, the main contributor in the film contributed to a sort of TV term, but basically the main character, Mike Kane, uh, who I stayed overnight with at his sort of hilltop, mountaintop community of almost heaven. And, and it, became, it turned out to be sort rather... Un- surprisingly likeable and hospitable to me. and um, You play and Monopoly end, with him. We play um, Monopoly with him and his wife, Chacha. We hang out, we go on patrol the next morning, we go down to the hardware store. Um, I jump up and down his trampoline, we chop logs together. It's sort of like for a suburban, pale, and sort of pencil necked South London kid like me, as I was. It was sort of every fulfilment of the fantasy of what frontier America might, might be like, you know, kind of rugged and involving, you know, just a snowy mountain top and work boots and a wood burning stove. And you know what I mean? Like it's a long way from, I don't know, going on the 37 bus to, um, to your school in East
1: Sheen. We have noticed that you've shied away from hard labor in a number of episodes. That where the, when, Once the work starts happening, you have other things to do.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think probably leave it to, the, leave it to the, um, the people who've got the appropriate muscle groups <laughs> to, developed. But uh, thank you for that. I, well, I like <laughs> things like, I, I'm good at the washing up. You know, should I carry these out? Would you like me to do a bit of washing up? But maybe not the log chopping and the heavy lifting. But the point about Mike was that, so he was basically really on the way out there in terms of his political outlook and his religious beliefs. But in the course of the intervening 25 years, A, the world didn't end. B, the UN didn't take over. C, he left almost heaven and sort of rejoined the real world. But he never really moderated his views. He continued to think that we're at the mercy of these sinister safe, satanic forces. But what did also happen was when I got back in touch with him, he was a huge fan of Trump. And and it was something extraordinary about the way in which not only did he finally find a president, a sort of agent of the federal government that he approved of, but this, it seemed as though it was indicative or symptomatic of a world that had somehow done a 180. You know, many people have remarked on the weirdness of the Trump phenomenon. And, and you know, and there's much you could say about that to do with Twitter and social media and radicalization, But... The, 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 what brought home the sort of the benchmark or the weirdness of it was that was that Mike Kane had finally found a president that he liked you know he, he, no, he no longer needed to be in almost heaven in a weird way sort of an almost heaven had sort of come to the White House um, so that's, that was one way in which it was sort of, yeah, sort of weirdly bizarrely and pr- predictive of the world that we now live in.
1: That's so interesting because we commented at the time that obviously the survivalist movement very much pushed to the right. And we spoke to someone who was running for office in um, one of the, the central belt states where these guys were and saying in terms of um, restrictions on masks and stuff, they were so anti it that they couldn't push anything through government to try and protect people, essentially. But Mike was, the, we said he was the Tom Hanks of that sort of movement. If you, if you were going to cast him, it was Tom Hanks that was going to play Mike. So it's very interesting that he kind of moved in that direction too.
2: Yeah, well, because he's got a sort of, uh, na- sort of neighbourly approachable uh, dad quality.
1: Absolutely that, yeah.
2: I think when I spoke to him, it was the beginning of last year, i just turned 49. And if memory says that, Mike was 49 when I met him. It, I'm now in the odd position of, you know, having been a sort of 26-year-old meeting people who were 20 or 30 years older. I'm now in the position of being the age of those people. And in fact, I'm just just making films at the moment where everyone's much younger than me. I I don't think I can say... Actually, maybe I think it's been announced today, so it's fine. I'm making this three-parter. It's called Forbidden America about the world of uh, different kind of areas of culture in America that have been made more extreme by social media in different respects, or in which they've been in some way coloured by social media in the world of the internet. And, uh, one of them is about the far right, you know, and it's no secret that there's a lot of people, you know, sort of far right activity on, on places like 4chan and 8chan and these internet bulletin boards. And then to an extent it's been purged from Twitter, but they end up on places like Gab and Parler and Telegram, these sort of smaller and, uh, more dissident focused social media platforms. Anyway, I only mention it because when I was among them, they're all like, the main guy's 22 years old and I'm going around like, I don't know, like I'm the old fart now. It's really odd.
0: Well, we've had this weird thing where we've been watching you, obviously, a lot and you are, you start off younger than we are now and then you kind of reach the age that we are now. And then in some it's cases- older.
2: Keep we've... going, I kept going, didn't I? You did. I didn't stop there.
0: And in some cases, we've watched the episode and then interviewed someone- from the episode on zoom so I sat down and then it was like this person was a time traveler and they just aged 20 years I'd just been watching them in the episode and then now there they are on zoom It was really surreal
2: (laughs) I once had the experience of being at my like 45th I think I think I just turned 45 and a a woman she happened to be Australian Australians can be quite direct I don't know if you've ever noticed and I think she'd had a few drinks as well but she it was almost like oh my God, I just saw you on television and you were like all cool and stuff. And now, oh my God, it's like, she didn't say it's like you're an old man, but she kind of, that's what she was, that's what she meant. Like you were all like groovy and stuff on the program. And now look at you now. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm 20 years older. I wasn't offended. I just thought it was funny though, that, It's the miracle of, you know, modern technology that you can compare exactly how you used to look. I mean, now they'll be able to make probably three-dimensional deep fakes, right? So that you can meet yourself as you were 20 years earlier. It would get old after five minutes, but you could do it as a little viral video. Like, I used to think it'd be funny to meet people who looked like me. And then there was a guy down in the West Country somewhere who had... Some sort of social issue, some social problem or mental problem. I'm not sure what it was, but he was he he holed up in a hotel. Did you hear about this? And and he he basically took a room in a hotel and said, uh, "Yeah, I'm Louis Theroux. Um I'm just checking in. I'm going to go up to my room now. But can you send up a bottle of whiskey and two packets of fags?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, okay." And he went up there and he spent three days, I think, two or three days in his room just ordering more and more booze and more cigarettes. And I think what twigged it wasn't that, like, you know, he didn't look like me. He didn't look that much like me. But they're like, I don't think Louis Theroux smokes, does he? (laughs) So after two or three days, they're like, maybe he isn't Louis Theroux. And he went to prison for it, I think. It would make an interesting something. But uh, I don't think you're going to get to 60 minutes of TV doing that.
1: I think people assume that's us when when we kind of approach people for interviews they're expecting you maybe and then we turn up we are the west country man with a bottle of whiskey and a, ba- a packet of fags in a hotel room
2: i wonder if that's yeah yeah maybe you're passing yourself off as being part of my team i hadn't even thought about that
1: not, no no um, pl- we don't plan to i think people may be assuming no no
2: if people draw conclusions and if You don't correct them. No, I'm just (laughs) joking. Um,
0: Well, he clearly didn't do his homework because we all know that you prefer red wine. So that's made quite clear throughout Weird Weekends.
2: That's very true. Although in lockdown, I got a bit of a taste for whiskey. But um, maybe he's just, maybe he's a me from the future. Maybe he's, anyway, I do find all of that stuff. um, Why were we talking about that? Deep fakes, older. Oh yeah, it's the aging process, isn't it? It's the aging process and the weirdness of um, of your younger self. That's one of the reasons why um, I keep making programs as well, because I'm afraid that I want to age in public gradually, so that, you know, I'm worried that if I take five years off and then I pop back up, it'll be like, oh my God, what happened to Louis Theroux? He looks so old. Just Just age, just a little bit, just make a couple of programs each year, And then people won't notice that you're turning into a hairy old prune.
0: Well, speaking of the aging process, Matt and I have aged quite a lot since we first met and we kind of cut our teeth making videos at the Edinburgh Fringe. We would film videos in the back of a camper van and make celebrities pick questions out of a biscuit tin at random. So our plan now is to bring that energy to you for the second half of this chat. Here we
2: go. Nice. We, um,
1: Having just finished re-watching, <laughs> that, that clattering will all make sense in a moment. <laughs> Having just finished watching Weird Weekends, we had too many questions to ask you, so we thought we'd leave it to chance instead. And uh, Louis, can you describe what you are currently clattering around there?
2: Okay, so you were very kind and you said, um, I'm, you, you basically sent me, A kind of um, sort of bingo tombola thing where you twist it. Luxury bingo and lotto drum set is its actual name. Complete bingo and lotto drum. Includes balls, cards, and spinner drum. That's one of those phrases where, unless you knew, you wouldn't know what that was called. But it's called a spinner drum. Mm -hmm. If someone said to you, like, what is that? You go, like, I have no idea. But it's a spinner drum made of wires. It contains balls with numbers on and... um, I think if I turn it, balls are going to start coming out.
1: So we we've, we've have a corresponding question to each ball in there. And this is weird bingo.
2: Fantastic. I18. 18. I18.
0: 18. Okay. Question 18. We spoke to your longtime collaborator, Jeffrey O'Connor about the episode of Weird Weekends that nearly happened, but didn't, he told us.
1: I always wanted to do something like a profile of a dictator, Charles Taylor. He was the ostensible president of Liberia, and he was a ruthless dictator. And we had approached him, and he said yes, and we were going to spend a week with him. Now, that would have been a really kind of challenging piece within the Weird Weekends format because he was a very bad man, but he was also an egomaniac. And I remember being in London over the summer, I think we were going to try to do it the fall, and we found out that two BBC journalists had just been kidnapped in Liberia by Taylor and they were being held captive. And at that point, the BBC pulled the plug. So we never went back to it. A couple years later, uh, Taylor was overthrown.
0: So is a profile of a dictator something you would still like to do at some point?
2: First of all, that was really interesting and fun to hear that. And what's striking is that his recollection is, oh, you know, in in, in a lot of respects, the same as mine in other respects, not how I remember it. I mean, he, Jeff, for people who don't know, directed the porn episode of weird weekends, the swingers episode, the one about self-help gurus, in Las Vegas, Marshall Silver and Co. He also did the brothel, Louis and the Brothel, The City Addicted to Crystal Meth, and the first of, the first and the third Westboro Baptist Church films. So we probably more, he's got more um, hours on the clock of, of sort of um, Louis Theroux programming than maybe anyone else, you know, of directors. And um, I remember the Charles Taylor, and the idea was. He was the president of Liberia. He'd been accused of war crimes. Um, What I remember is that our series producer at the time was not particularly a fan. He was very um, ratings-focused, and I think I might be doing him a disservice, but my recollection was that he was like, who's going to tune in for, you know, Louis meets Charles Taylor? It's not exactly like going to a swingers party, right? Not Anne Whittacombe. It's not Anne Whittacombe. When Louis met Charles Taylor... It's a bit um, sort of almost like BBC World Service or, you know, it's a bit niche. But at the same time, it's sort of like, well, people, everyone's fascinated by Idi Amin and Colonel Gaddafi and maybe there's a way of making it work. And then I think I heard an interview with Charles Taylor on the radio as part of the research. And he struck me as like it wasn't. I mean, politicians are hard because they're not entertainers, but it was a slightly boring interview. And I think I lost my nerve somewhat. Not, you know, my, I lost my nerve, not as in kind of fearing for my life, but in the sense of feeling like, actually, this how is this going to end up being entertaining? It could just feel like he's going to give us a tour of his new, I don't know, like bread factory. You know what I mean? Or cement works. And he's obviously not going to be committing war crimes while we're around, you know? I've seen, as, as part of the prep, I saw... Films. There's like a Barbette Schroeder documentary about Idi Amin. There's a famous Herzog one, I think, about Bokassa. There's a few different profiles of dictators. And what you often find is um, they don't really show you very much. I mean, surprise, surprise. They don't sort of say, um, hey, do you want to come and see me torturing a guy in the the dungeon? You know, uh, they've got enough sense not to do that. So would I do one now? I think you'd have to think about how you approached it like how, I, I would have all sorts of reservations not just with dictators but with politicians in general as to um, as to how you would make it into an entertaining piece of TV and you know for all, almost all the programs I do there has to be a sense that, that the person in question is willing to bring like they're sort of they're a game to the, to, to the, to the encounter, like that they're willing to, like Anne Whittacombe, that was probably the hardest of all the, when Louis mets, in a way, because she's, you know, whereas it? A Keith Harris or a, um, a Paul Daniels or a, a, a Jimmy Savile, like they're, they're TV people, like they're people who understand, like I've got to justify my salary by telling jokes and um, playing the part. Anne Winnicombe's not thinking that. She's seeing a lot of risk and she's attempting to manage the risk and that that makes it difficult. It'd be interesting to think about which dictator's Kim Jong-il, probably. No, Kim Jong-un it is. let's say he's dead, isn't he? Yeah, get one that's alive would be a a bonus. Uh,
1: 20. 20, another clip. So we spoke to your former acting coach, Robert McCaskill, about his memories of filming with you in Off-Broadway. Off um, and this is what This is Rob, so
2: weird. This is like being in... This know, is what? your is life. Like, yeah, this is your life, or, but is it, it's a bit like also like you're in heaven and you're trying <laughs> to justify your passage into paradise. But anyway, let's go.
1: So this is what Robert McCaskill had to say. Well, Louis Thoreau, you know, I do remember his presence and his
2: sense of humour. You know, at one point he asked me, if I wanted to become a movie star, a world famous actor, like by the end of the month, what would you recommend? I just remember that naivete that he was kind of making fun of. But I do think that everyone feels that like, I'd love to be a famous actor. But I don't know if I want 10 years of destitution. I don't know if I want to struggle for it. But fortunately, people are willing
1: to struggle for it. So. We 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 know that you dabbled in in script writing in screenwriting before you started your documentary career. Was there an actor inside of you always wanting to get out?
2: Okay, okay, interesting. And first of all, I, I liked his, his what Robert McCaskill just said because he's like, I remember Louis Theroux because he asked a really stupid question, <laughs> and it he was He enjoyed your
1: naivete. Yeah,
2: and I enjoyed his his stupid question, like. It, I... <laughs> I think he's doing me so much he's giving me so much credit. Like he asked a question that, you know, he knew it was stupid to be funny, and it was kind of funny, you know? Uh, thank you for that, Robert McCaskill, if you happen to be listening. I I really don't have um the acting bug, I don't think. Like, there's a part of me that if I imagined I was good at it, I would perhaps it would be more of a tempting prospect. I just Whatever that... I get self-conscious and I kind of seize up. Actors seem to have a gift for... um, Like, good actors. For... I don't know what it is. Like, whatever that gift is. Almost channeling something real, but not allowing it to over... You know, affect... um, Not sort of going stiff and and not sort of um, getting too in their head about what they're doing. I had a terrible experience when I was about 14 when I'd been cast by my friend Joe Cornish in a production of Bugsy Malone in the role of Dandy Dan. And um, this was when we were at school together. And I just remember it preying on my mind and thinking, oh, I'm not gonna be any good at this. Oh no, oh no. And then we had a rehearsal and I I was intensely self-conscious. I would learned the lines, but I just felt all like, I just felt all weird. And so I said to him, "Mum, I don't think I can do it. Joe. i mean i began obsessing on it because i didn't want to let him down and a couple of days went by and i couldn't stop thinking about it and then i said i can't do it joe i'm sorry i can't do it i can't do it and um that was really my last ever experience with acting
1: you're you're playing down your your role as uh asexual part ranger in a in a pornographic movie
2: even that even that you can see though Hi, fellas, I'm just out. You're talking about in Take a Peek in the porn episode of Weird Weekends where I play the asexual part ranger. It didn't say asexual part ranger in the script. That was just the sort of interpretation I brought to it. And I'm just out here warning everybody about uh, there's been a, a jailbreak. Here's a composite. I remember getting... I kept stumbling over whether you say composite or composite because it's different in America and in the UK. Anyway, thank you for for bringing that up. I, I did do the park ranger. Another reminder of why I don't act.
0: I think I think your best acting was probably when you were crushed to death by a woman's thighs. That was some. Right. That was some extreme
1: acting.
2: That was in the bodybuilding episode of Weird Weekends. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, in, I play the role of Louis Theroux in many episodes of Weird Weekends. You know in a certain way right but that's i suppose i think i'm comfortable when i'm improving uh, as opposed to learning lines so like when i'm saying goofy things because you might say like well what's the difference you know you're kind of doing in weird weekends you're going around saying goofy things doing a heightened version of yourself but the thing was i think because i was um not learning lines Uh, I was just sort of riffing on some sense of what I thought would be funny to say. It seemed okay. It's like telling a joke the second or third time. You know, you say something funny, and people are like, oh, we didn't get that. Can you say it again? There's nothing worse because you're like, well, it won't be funny because we've all heard the joke.
1: Louis, could you spin the tumbler again for us, please?
2: There we go. Oh, two came out. Well, we'll do the first one. First, and it says B five.
0: Five. Okay, so you write in your book about your issues with the episode Weird Christmas, um, and it's also becomes fairly obvious halfway through the episode that you're quite tired. Do you regret doing that episode, <laughs> and what was that like?
2: Um, I would say I don't regret doing the episode. I definitely view it as a a kind of a learning experience. I was so excited to make it and I thought that you know for people who don't know having made the first four episodes of Weird Weekends which were about survivalists in Idaho evangelists in Texas uh UFO believers in in the in the American uh, west around Palm Springs and California and Colorado and uh, and the and the fourth one well, was porn industry of course I took I thought it'd be funny to take one of the main contributors from each episode and bring them all to New York and that we'd spend a week together just sort of doing little missions together almost a bit like well I wasn't gonna it's not you know I mean this was before big brother so if you had a big brother where there was no house you weren't filmed round the clock there were only four or five characters and weirdly they were all men then you'd get something like what this was and I thought oh it'll be funny because It's funny me talking to a UFO believer, but what if the UFO person is talking to a porn performer, right? And then then the Christian evangelist is there, and then it'll all be kicking off, and it's going to be super funny. And I thought it was like, I I thought it'd be a fun sort of construct, um, and it just seemed like, it would be like if Weird Weekends was sort of reality cubed, this would sort of be reality squared, this would be reality cubed. It would like add a whole new level of, whole new iteration of, of strangeness. But what I didn't really appreciate was how much of what works in Weird Weekends is the sense of me in good faith going into a world, attempting to report on it and being at the mercy of events, which is the key in a way, is the fact that I'm sort of the victim as much as I might appear, you know, in, in, as much as in reality, I'm sort of in control in certain ways. Like I'm, I'm, you know, there with my team and blah, blah, blah. But actually if I'm uncomfortable on a porn set, somehow it's like I'm outnumbered. Right. And I'm sort of the, the butt of the joke in a, in a certain way. Whereas if I bring all these people to my world and then there's no journalistic inquiry whatsoever, it's just like, Hey, let's just let these people loose to have arguments and, 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 and be weird to, around each other, it had a kind of queasy, Jerry Springer-ish feel, which maybe is even obvious. Like, yeah, well, of course, duh, that sounds exactly like Jerry Springer. Um, the question was, were, were, do I regret it? No, because I think, I think I sort of needed to learn that in some way. And I would say like, it's not that it's terrible. Like there's certainly things to enjoy in it. It just got an odd, amoral, quality and I do mean amoral like I don't think it's immoral I don't think we did something bad or wrong but it just feels as though it's not coming from a place of oh I want to find out about the world and I want to contribute to the sum of human understanding it feels like it's coming from a place of oh I want to see something really fucked up on tv (laughs) you know that has no real sense or logic to it you You say there
1: was no house. But there is your Williamsburg Brooklyn pad That's that right. we see. Which is I'm guessing was your actual flat at the time where you lived. It was
2: my actual flat. It was actually not in because I'd moved out of Williamsburg and I was living in Fort Green in a lovely brownstone. I mean, if nothing else, it's nice to have some footage of that little apartment that I was in, which overlooked Fort um Fort Green Park, which is beautiful. And I think that the guys were fine with it. It was it was Randy James may he rest in peace from the evangelist episode. It was Mike Ayler, may he rest in peace from um, survivalists. JJ Michaels, porn performer who I spoke to last year and appears in life on the edge. And then uh, Reverend Robert Short, may he rest in peace. That's weird to think that he, he, or three of them are dead now. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And it does have a couple of classic moments. If it was sort of 20 minutes long, you know what I mean? Like, I think it'd be quite a tight little, strange little tight short film that you could show, I don't know, like at festivals and stuff.
1: There's a scene where you're you're trying to explain to Mike what's happening and you just stop halfway through the sentence because you don't even, you can't even finish it. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny we kept you kept that in because it just shows you were so knackered I having to lost. kind of corral these people. I don't was, even uh, know if I was
2: tired. I think I was just lost in the concept. I think I just lost in the concept and sort of, I was demoralized is probably what I was
1: I think what we
0: said is at the end we, we I felt everyone could relate to you waving everyone off in a taxi that sense of relief when your family leave after yeah. like a, lo- a holiday you're just like, oh thank God they're gone now
2: Well, and also that um, it genuinely was uh, filmed on Christmas Day, and um, it's kind of odd to think because Christmas Day normally is sort of day we literally set aside to spend with our close family, our nearest and dearest. And it's odd, not only that uh, I was willing to sort of say, you know what, I'm gonna blow off my family this year and spend Christmas with three people I met, or four people I met making programs, but also that they were all available, right?
0: Yeah, we did actually wonder if it really was Christmas day. It really
2: was, it genuinely was. I know a lot of people are surprised by that. So odd.
1: Did Very you have nice. another pull from the tombola?
2: Yes, I've got this one ready to go. It says B15 on it. B15.
1: So, in bodybuilding, you meet female muscle enthusiast and jean shorts wearer, Mr. Charles Peoples. Oh, Is yeah. he low key the most terrifying man in all of Weird Weekends?
2: Actually, that's a great question. I'd be, I'd be, I hate to turn this back on you, but I'm curious to get your take on. What's going on with him? Like, because I think there's something in that. But what made you spot that? Well, let, hang on. So let me frame it because I like to involve. Believe it or not, there's people who haven't memorized every episode of Weird Weekends. So yeah, I, I made it. It was about bodybuilding, and as part of it, we sort of focused more on the female bodybuilders, just because it seemed more intriguing, because it was more, I suppose, counterintuitive. Like, I mean, um, and maybe it's this is sort of retrograde thinking but yeah the cliche would be oh yeah men want to have huge muscles and and maybe women don't want to have huge muscles but there there are evidently and women who want to have huge i mean extraordinary some of the women's physiques um they were like comparable to sort of mid uh 70s arnold schwarzenegger right like it's that bursting muscles bursting out of their arms and thighs and within that world there's a subset of people who are appreciators of that female archetype and he, he that was his thing and he had a kind of a um a house and a like a with vast acres of land on it where he would allow these women to come and film mu- muscle fetish videos that involved them running around sort of beating up and torturing men but what was your take on him
0: we spent a lot of the episode being a little bit um disturbed by him but i think because
2: we did you interview him we no, didn't
1: we interviewed tatiana actually who wow. you have a, the arm wrestling match with in yeah. the, the hotel who have we can play nice. a clip from yeah play like a clip it. yes play a clip
2: oh my god this is fun
1: so this is tatiana uh, thinking back about that day she filmed with you in the in the hotel room
2: i remember
0: the blue dress that i wore i remember the arm wrestling in the room i remember his glasses i remember everything it was so much fun it really was and it's so funny because i easily did it then with another person that could have turned out a very different way you know what i'm saying so i was really really blessed i can't imagine myself doing that interview now and i'm so glad that i got a chance to do it it was a nice clean fresh look into something that's I hate to call it a fetish because fetish to me means
1: seedy and underground
0: but something that was alternative
2: fun nice wow I wonder what would have happened if it had not gone well
0: kind of segueing from Charles a little bit but our question to you was do you think it would have turned out different if her client had showed up to that arm wrestle
2: uh I think it would have been fine And I I don't know what happened with the client, and whether the client had never intended to come. I think it would have been fine because, do you know what? Tatiana seemed genuinely like a nice, uh, open-hearted person. So, and I imagine that her clients—I think I remember her saying that in the scene—that they know that they knew just from her vibe that you know not to ask for anything um, weird or seedy or questionable, right? She just didn't seem like um, that kind of person. And although, yes, there is something... I like her use of the euphemism, alternative. It's an alternative scenario, right? It's definitely not your everyday kind of um, hobby, right? Which is guys, typically guys who want to be kind of wrestled and arm-wrestled and, I don't know, different ways smothered by extremely muscular women. But it feels, in the moment kind of positive and healthy and nice now with respect to Charles I think what happened with Charles was um he did not appreciate my what he took to be my approach what he took to be my sort of um attitude you know and we had that quote earlier from the acting coach who's like oh I enjoyed his naivete and his I think Charles was the opposite like I think he did not enjoy it and I got some sort of feeling of. Um, I wouldn't want to generalize it. Like maybe in other situations, he's full of sweetness and light. But in that encounter, I didn't even notice it fully at the time. But there's this sort of, I think, vaguely disquieting background sense of I, I can feel your judgment. Like he, like him him thinking like I feel like your judgment and I resent it. Like there's a there's a degree of resentment I feel coming from him. And one of the reasons I say that, because I don't know how fully evidenced it is in the scene itself, but he kept, we filmed a scene where I was being chased around by this muscly woman, and she kept wrestling me, and repeatedly he got her to throw me down this hillside, and so I rolled down the side of the hill, and I was like, fine, you know, I don't mind. We did three or four, maybe even five takes, again, rolling down the hill, rolling down the hill, when I got back, I noticed I had like uh, a little scratchy spot on my arm and then another one appeared and then another and then they started appearing on uh, around my face and on, and on my tummy where my T-shirt had ridden up. And basically they got worse and worse until my arms, my forearms and parts of my stomach were a superating mass of pus or well, not pus, but superating mass of running sores and the hillside. That he'd repeatedly got me to roll down had been covered in poison ivy.
1: Oh which my God! It's not
2: a thing in the UK, but in America, if you've got poison ivy on your property, like you know about it, right? And it's it's, it's axiomatic that like, oh, be careful out there. There's poison ivy. So there's no question in my mind that he was he deliberately um, got me to roll down that hillside, exposing me to poison ivy, um, knowing that. This would be my punishment for what he took to be my irreverent attitude. I ended up having to go to a Harley Street specialist because the, um, the rashes got so bad. Like, you know, you know, in a weird way, what I'm answering, the question I'm answering is like, what was the worst physical side effect? Like, when have you been most badly hurt? And it wasn't from being punched or fired at. It was from being uh, given a kind of a horrendous case of poison ivy. The crowning irony was the treatment for extreme skin conditions such as poison ivy rashes is steroids. So I was put on a course of heavy duty steroids and weirdly I kind of, you know, which in a muscle film, you know, what could be more apropos? And, and, and I, and taking them, I noticed that it was, it kind of made me more assertive. Um, You, you notice an immediate side effect when you take a heavy course of steroids it makes you a little bit bolshy but anyway so so was he low-key scary i would say yes based on that right
1: right louis thank you for joining us for weird bingo my Um,
2: pleasure let's listen when you get you said you're going to do a few more right so maybe when you're a little further along the road we can do this again because it was fun
1: that'd be great We'd absolutely like to do that. When Louis Met is next, so maybe after that we can...
2: Yeah, maybe. There's not very many of those. There's only like six. Oh, but Mm. you have to go into the the wilderness of Saville. Yeah, that's the next one. Who are you going to get as your guest?
1: TBC. We're still working that out for Saville.
2: Big decision. High stakes, that one. Steve Coogan.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. He's he's now been announced.
2: Yeah, he's been announced.
1: Do you think that's a good idea to do a drama of Saville?
2: Um... I guess we'll find out. Hard to say. It's, it feels uh, risky. I, I, I think I'd have to read the script to, to really know. I do remember that when I made the program and I bumped into Steve Coogan a few months afterwards and he was talking intently about Savile and Savile's voice and his vocal mannerisms. And he he's studied him because he, um, he used to play Savile on um, Spitting Image and may have invented the catchphrase jangle, jangle, jewellery, jewellery. I don't think Jimmy Savile ever said that. Hey, listen, thanks again, Matthew and Alex. I appreciate you having me on. I'm going to have to listen to the podcast. You know, I haven't listened to the podcast, which sounds insulting, but mainly because I find if I it's like hearing yourself being talked about. Sometimes it makes you feel a bit like... oh, uh, I think we're you know, also
0: overst- in a very fond way, but we are kind of mean to you sometimes as well, to past you,
2: there you young go. you. There you go. So, I well, if you think would i get a kick out of listening to it probably would right well maybe not yeah i think
1: we talk about your fashion choices a lot oh yeah a lot of shirts
2: there's a lot of weird clothes, yeah. The India episode, I look at that one like, what was that? that? seems like that was peak insanity.
0: One orange shirt that you had that you wore so often that it, it became a character in the podcast in itself because you wore it so
2: often.
1: You've, you initially you go the... on the Chopping channel and you're going to audition and you say, oh, can I wear this? And the woman just looks at you and goes, no, you can't wear that shirt. But...
2: I loved that shirt. It looks sort of like a flamenco performer's shirt. But then I got into a brown one, which... I wore 15 or 20 times, which will, which will you'll spot. Also, you'll see the worst fashion choice was in the when you do the Paul Daniels one. I got these quite tight, um, sort of form-fitting, form-hugging jumpers, but you can see my nipples. <laughs> it's really awful.
0: Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at All Through Pod, where we'll post some pictures and some tweets, and you can keep up with our next series.
1: And if you haven't heard any of our adventures into the Louis Through back catalogue before, then hello, you've got lots of catching up to do. But you can find that wherever you get podcasts. SoundCloud, Spotify, Acast, you name it, we're there. Just search all the way through. Angels, Angels on, on your, your bodies. bodies.